0: Hello, curious ones. This is your co-host, Olivia Bowen, with an important message and request before we get into today's episode, which is the last of our regular season one.
1: Oh, hey, and this is Megan LaPerry, your other co-host. And what we'd like to ask is if an episode led you to look at something differently, maybe change the way you approach something, or you have an insight to share, we want to know. When Megan and I first thought of this
0: podcast, we wanted to entertain you, of course, but we also really wanted to make each episode useful and actionable.
1: So that's why we'd love if you would send us a voice to CuriousNaturePod at gmail.com. We might be able to feature you in a special bonus episode to cap off season one. And with that, let's dig into today's
0: episode. I've got our tarot deck here, and I'm just going to give it a shuffle so that we can get some guidance, medicine, whatever it is we need for this episode, because this is an incredibly special episode today. We have our very first guest, so calling in my angels, guides, and well and wise ancestors. Cut the deck, and we'll just go with what's right on top. Five of Swords. You're definitely feeling strong, maybe a little angry or a little fed up with the situation, and you're prepared to throw punches. If you choose to go this route, you'll definitely win, but there will probably be unforeseen consequences. You're so focused on this situation, you're not thinking about the future. Stop and consider the situation for a second before you do something you'll regret.
1: That feels a bit foreboding. Foreboding is the word that came to mind for me as well, but I do feel like we need to conserve the environment, and I am angry about it. Yes, so when it comes to today's topic, which is water
0: as part of our cycles season, yeah, sometimes I get a little fiery about water, and I think that's true for both of you as well. So we've been talking this season, again, about cycles, and we've been digging into maybe the more metaphysical unseen side of things, right? We talked about the lunar cycles and how that can work with menstrual cycles, and then the seasons and how we can have that internally and externally but we also love science and we love data. So when there is science and data for something, we are all for it. And so today we brought in one of the best. I'm Megan Laprery, a brand photographer. And I'm Olivia Bowen, a certified life coach. And this
1: is Curious Nature. Mm-hmm. Megan, can you introduce our first guest? Today, our guest is Sarah Brennan, my longtime friend. Sarah Brennan is the deputy program manager for NASA's Water Resource Program Area. She has a master's from Oregon State University and worked for the Water Science Technology Board of the National Academy of Sciences. She currently lives in Baltimore and has lived in Ghana, South Korea, and Austria. Welcome, Sarah. We are so glad to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here. So, Sarah, what drew you to this work?
2: Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I'm certainly view myself as an extremely lucky individual that I am the type of person that truly loves what they do. But the truth is, I kind of fell into the career path that I'm on, which is water resources management. So when I was in high school, the one thing I knew I always wanted to do was join the Peace Corps. When I went through college, I knew that that was my plan as soon as I was going to get out. And back when I applied to the Peace Corps, they randomly assigned you to countries. And so in that process, they assigned me to Ghana as a water, sanitation and health volunteer. I was an international poli sci major in college, but I said, okay, it's fine. If I get to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer, I will absolutely do it. And then that's what started my career path in water science and management. After my service, the more I learned about it, the more I got interested in it, the more I really understood how complex and how critical it was. And then just continued on the path, went back for a graduate degree, started seeking out new opportunities in the field. And today, I, like I said, I'm very lucky and fortunate to be one of those people that just truly, truly loves what I do and the work that I do.
1: That's wonderful, Sarah. And I know that You and I met right before you came back to the States and pursued grad school and I saw you as you were transitioning into this field and it was really cool to watch you fall into something that you became so passionate about. And I'm so grateful that you are in the position that you were in. So a little bit about NASA, how do you use this satellite data for water management?
2: Yeah, so the position that I have now is the deputy program manager for NASA, and that's through Booz Allen because I'm a government contractor. I've been supporting the water resources program for about six years, and it really is just remarkable in what we can do with satellite data when it comes to water resource management, right? We think of waters in the streams or it's in the ground or it's in the snow. How could we possibly use satellites to tell us that? But right now, NASA has 25 Earth-facing satellites that are just circulating the Earth, telling us about this amazing Earth system that we have. And most of those satellites have water elements to it. And so maybe just as two quick examples, when you hear about snow, I guess the snow enthusiasts out there already know this, but when you're thinking about how much water there is in the West, most of that comes as snow melt and runoff from the Sierra Nevada mountains and so people think okay it melts and then we have water in the rivers but what we don't know is the complexities behind that and there's different grain sizes of the snow and how much water is in snow is actually different depending on the temperature that it was when it snowed and so we use satellite information to help better predict when that snow is going to melt and we do that by being able to also track how much sunlight is being reflected off the snow so if it's darker more light will be absorbed. It'll melt quicker. If it's brighter, light will reflect. And so therefore, it'll stay solid as a snowpack for longer. And so just one example of how we can use satellites to help us better understand the water that we have, how much water we're going to have in the weeks and months coming down the line, and really just use that information to say, how can we make sure that we're in the right position? And then the other one, which I just think is really cool. And granted, this is one capability out of hundreds that we're able to do with satellite information, but most people think of gravity as this singular centrifugal force, which it is, but it's based on mass. And so we have a satellite system that's called GRACE, which is gravity. And then it's two sister satellites that fly next to each other. One is stationary in space and the other one moves as Earth's gravitational pull changes. And so you can track how Earth's gravitational pull is changing around earth and most of that is because of the hydrologic shifts within the earth so how groundwater shifts and moves around earth changes earth's gravitational pull and i just think that's so cool like the true gravity of water and how that changes earth's gravitational pull is because of how water moves around the earth and to me that's fascinating
0: this is so cool My nerdy little heart is just bursting with excitement. So you get all this data in this incredible way. It still blows my mind. Like we're living in the future right now with everything we have. And then what does a water resource management expert do with all of that information?
2: Yeah, exactly. And it just depends on the question that you're trying to answer. So in the example that I was using before of water managers in the West that are trying to predict how much water is going to be in the streams and the reservoirs as a result of snowmelt. All of that is modeled. So they take that data and they say, okay, because of the albedo, which is that sun reflectance and the temperature and what we know, we can say, this is how much we think the snow is going to melt. And so therefore how much is going to be in the stream, which means how much is going to be in the reservoir, which helps me decide how much I need to release from my reservoir and how much I need to make sure is in the streams for allocations for farms to use and cities to use and domestic use. We have other applications that show us how wet and damp the soil is, and also how much evaporation and transpiration is happening in the farms. And so that helps irrigators, that helps farmers and, and managers take that information and say, okay, this is how much I need to irrigate, right? This is how much water I need to apply to my field because I know with the current environmental factors that this is how much water is gonna be lost from the plants, this is how much water is gonna be lost from the ground, and this is how what the ground currently is, and so they can make better, tailored decisions on irrigation needs, farming needs, and water allocation needs.
1: So, even in the news this morning, I was hearing about the Colorado River and how there are so many places that draw from that. I want to say California draws from the Colorado River, of course. Colorado does as well. Is that something that you, in your position, or someone within your industry? would be helping to manage the allocation of that water.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, Megan. So yeah, there are seven states that pull water from the Colorado River, and we work with all of them. There's the Colorado River, the upper basin, the lower basin. Every state has a water resources department that's helped to manage their water resources. Central Arizona Project is looking at water in the Colorado used for Arizona. So there are a lot of official state agency levels regional levels like the western states water council is there as well and the non-government and non-profit organizations that are just trying to help provide information that is needed to make those critical decisions
1: so with that looking at how nasa is reading satellites to look at how much water we have access to in terms of snowmelt or in terms of average rainfall are we now coming to a place where the data has shifted significantly in the past 5, 10, 20 years? Are you seeing over a long period of time that we have less water? Do we have more water? Do we have more water with more pollution? What are you getting in terms of data on how much water we have access to and is it clean?
2: That's a great question. So we have decades worth of data, but that data has been improving by every year with every sensor and satellite we send up, the information gets better. And it's not just from NASA and Earth observations. It's also from ground truthing information and information that we're gathering on the ground. So to answer the first part of your question, yes, we're getting more data than we've ever had before. With more data, we have more information, more ability to use that to our advantage. When it comes to the state of water, which I think was your second question, we are seeing some significant shifts. I mean, when you talk about the basins in the West being at the lowest they had been in years, that's from years of observations of seeing that sort of change. When we talk about flooding happening more often, that again is the result of change that we're seeing. And then you mentioned also water quality. Water quality is a huge concern. And so the 2023 UN Water Conference was in March, and they focus on these three areas, actually, that you just mentioned, in areas where it's too dry, in areas where it's too wet, and then in areas when we're talking about the quality of water. You may have it, but
1: really, what is the health impacts of that water? To be completely honest, I thought of rainfall, but didn't think of snowfall, which of course, when melts, becomes water. So with that, Sarah, I'm wondering, what can we do in our houses, in our yards, in our communities to use this water more wisely. And I believe 10 years ago, I asked you some questions and you answered them at that time. But now with your vast knowledge and my limited understanding of having a rain barrel now, is there such a thing as gray water or brown water? And is there a way that we can reuse our water, say for washing dishes or if we're taking a shower to water plants. Could you go into that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So
2: yeah, there are terms for different quality of water, essentially. And so gray water is just like you explained. Gray water is internal household use that's usually coming from your shower or your washing machine. And it can be utilized again inside the household. But when you're looking at using gray water, you want to be really careful about how you use that for a few different reasons. I fully encourage gray water use. I think that if anyone is interested in doing it, just make sure that you're doing it correctly. There are some things that you want to pay attention to when you're using gray water. Most of the time, you want to make sure that if you're recycling gray water, like you're collecting it from your washing machine or from your shower, that you still don't want to directly apply it to edible vegetables. Most of the time you want to reroute it so it's underneath the topsoil and it's infiltrated and you're using it in that way. And then also at the same time, if you're installing new plumbing, so to make your house more of a gray water system, you wanna see if you can put in what they call I believe a trival so you can determine whether you want the water that you use to go to your septic or your sewer system, or if you want it to go to your gray water system. And so therefore, if anything becomes contaminated, you can essentially send it to the sewer system. But keep in mind, if you're doing that, if you're using a gray water system, you want to be really conscious about what you're sending down your drains. So if you're using the gray water from your shower, the products that you're using in your hair and your body and things like that. And then also at the same time, if you're doing laundry, you know, what products you're using. So I think the safest rule of thumb is that if you make sure it's underground and you're using it for aesthetic pleasing applications to water your lawn and your bushes and things like that, it's terrific. If you start using it for a garden, you want to take extra care and pay attention to that. Also, you don't want to store gray water because it doesn't store very well. And then also at the same time, they typically say you don't want to use kitchen sink water because you can... Take bacteria and things that may be from other vegetables or that you'll be meat, if you're a meat eater in your house, that you don't necessarily want applied to your lawn. So, something to keep in mind. Certainly, a system that we want to use. Countries like Australia have made significant investments in making sure homes can use gray water systems, but something that you certainly can look into if that's what you want to do
0: for your household. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's a great response. So, we talked about gray water, which So good to know. But beyond that, right, if somebody isn't going to install a tri-valve system in their house or if they live in an apartment and they don't have lawns and gardens to water, for example, what are some things that you would like to see more people doing? Are there unexpected things we can and should be doing around our homes to help improve the water situation overall?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the most responsible thing that individuals can do is be a conscientious consumer. Because if we end up talking about water quality, we can talk about some of the issues that we're seeing in our waterways. And most of that doesn't come from domestic use issues. I think that when you're buying items, you can look at where it's sourced from, the impact it has to the environment. You can think about what you're putting down your drain when it comes to beauty products and cleaners and things like that, that you use in the home. And I understand that when people say, okay, like domestic use, we want to be conscious of the amount of water that we're using. And yes, you absolutely do, because we want to talk about the value of water and what it takes to get water into your household. So you want to be really conscious of how much you're using, but the most impactful thing you can do is to be a conscientious consumer of what you're buying and what you're sending down your drains and how that product is being made.
0: I love that. And that was not A facet that I had considered. I thought you might give some other little tip to help with our faucets or something, but no, this is such a bigger issue and on a much bigger scale because when you think about it, if we're all buying fast fashion online, the production and the treatment of that material and then the shipping and the packaging, the plastic it's in, everything to get it into our homes, I could see how that would have a much bigger (laughs) footprint than just turning off the water when I brush my teeth, which, of course, we also want to do.
1: Exactly. Yes. I'm Megan LaPrairie, brand photographer. I'm so excited to tell you that I'm going to be having an all-day personal branding session for you in your small business. It will be held in D.C. on December 5th, 2023. Please reach out if you want to find out more at Laprairiephoto.com. These sessions will be 20 minutes 10 photos, $500. It's easy. It's a beautiful spotlight session to highlight you and your small business. So if you offer a service or wish to highlight something special, get in now so that you can start the year off right with brand new images that will make your website shine. There are limited spots available. So make sure you sign up now. Again, that's laprairiephoto.com. I look forward to working with you.
0: Going a little bit more local, one of the books that I love is called Root and Ritual by Becca P. Astrelli, and she shares this sweet practice of putting a little card over her faucets that acknowledges where the water in her home is coming from to help ground us into the systems of which we are a part and we can maybe feel a little bit divorced from as we are in our little homes. Do you have any advice on where we could get that information? Because that's been on my to-do list. I don't even know where to start to figure out where my home's water comes
1: from. Yeah. I know when I lived in Detroit, my water came through the Detroit River. I know the D.C. area is the Potomac River. But do you know about Maryland, specifically Montgomery County, how we can figure out where our water is coming in?
0: Did we just Google our municipality? That's exactly
2: right. Yeah. So wherever your provider is, you could just look it up on their website and they will clearly say, this is where we get our water from. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I love that practice of putting something next to your sink that says, this is where this water comes from. And just to add on to that, I would also put all the time and energy and the amazing engineering capabilities and feet that went into getting that water to your house. It's just unbelievable. So you can easily just Google essentially where your water comes from. Megan mentioned I'm up in Baltimore and we pull water in Baltimore. So the city water and for, I think, for the surrounding counties, we pull from the Gunpowder River, the Patapsco River and the Susquehanna River. And then essentially they pull that water into three reservoirs around the area and they store it in the reservoirs and then they pull that into the treatment plants and then send it out to the city. And then for D.C., they pull that water from the Potomac. So it's a very localized system. They pull the water from the Potomac, they treat it, and then it goes out to the city residents. But the truth is, I mentioned before, the engineering feat behind getting water to your house is just mind blowing to me. Even for Baltimore, I mentioned that we pull from reservoirs to get that water from the Lock Raven Reservoir, which is in Northern Maryland. It's an eight mile long tunnel that is 12 feet wide. And that's how water gets down to where we're at. And then when we're looking at something like New York, that system from New York is just absolutely amazing. New York city residents drink water from the Catskill mountains in upstate New York. And it's a 92 mile pipe that is a thousand feet wide. This is wild. Isn't that wild? I think that's amazing, yeah. When you turn on your faucet, you're like, great, water's here. I'm like, did you think about what it took to get water there? And that pipeline in New York is 100 years old. It took them seven years to build, 100 years ago, and it's absolutely massive. It's just amazing in my mind, the systems we've built to make sure that you have water when you turn on your faucet.
0: And that it works as reliably as it does. Incredible.
1: Yeah. It's these things that we really as novices don't understand. Like we use the water. I know that it's here. It's clean. I don't really understand how it got to me or where it came from. And I don't take the time to think about it. So I'm really grateful to have this conversation because it's, it's making me think about water in a whole different way.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for allowing me to nerd out here for an hour. I'm having a lot of fun.
1: (laughs) So when it comes to potable water, I know you and I spent time in Ghana and we were constantly using these bag sachets to get water into our bodies that had been processed. But when it comes to the water in our faucets, say in our kitchens or our bathrooms or at a school, the drinking fountains versus the bathrooms at the school, I'm hearing different people say, oh, don't drink out of that faucet. Oh, but drink out of this faucet aren't all faucets created equal? So do you have any knowledge as to why I wouldn't wanna drink out of a certain faucet, but in other cases, another faucet is fine?
2: Yeah, there's a lot in that question, to be honest, Megan. It's a great question, and I think it's something that everybody should be asking. Let's start with, if there are signs that say, don't drink this water, don't drink the water, right? Like, (laughs) you can safely assume there's a reason that they're telling you not to. Your best bet is to always drink water from an identified drinking water source, a fountain, a kitchen sink, something that is expected to be providing water for drinking use. And that's for a few reasons. In your household, it may be the same, but when you're in public buildings, there are big systems that help deliver water and you just don't know what's going on in those systems. So internally, there's something called direct or indirect systems which are very popular actually in Europe where direct systems mean that water that's coming to the house for drinking goes directly to your faucet but then it's stored the water that is used elsewhere in your house and so then there's that risk for contamination if there's another container or another cylinder or a cistern in your house that's storing that water that then is being used for showering and for bathroom faucets there's just another level of possible contamination if You're in old buildings or old cities, and there might be an issue with the plumbing lines. We all remember some of the issues that are going around the states. We've got aging infrastructure. And so they're gonna prioritize replacing the pipes that are providing drinking water first. And so you might not know the age or the quality of the pipes that are in other areas of the building or the city. And then I think in general, when you're comparing kitchen sink use and bathroom sink use, it's just that chance and risk for contamination. And so, if someone's washing their hands at the bathroom sink, there's a higher chance that the water, that faucet, has essentially been contaminated with germs that you don't want in your drinking water. And so, that's why I think that a lot of people say, yeah, it's usually fine. But at the same time, there's probably a lot going on, especially in public settings and public buildings that you don't know about. And it's just better to be on the safe side.
1: Growing up as a kid in the 90s and 80s, I feel like my family was trying to save money. And so we just go refill it in the bathroom out at any public space. And I hadn't really thought about it until I got older and having these designated drinking fountains for your water bottles where you can fill up your water bottles in airports and various municipalities. And I started thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't be drinking the bathroom sink water. So it's good to have this inside information. I know you're not an engineer architect by any stretch of the imagination. But I think you have a lot of insider knowledge when it comes to where our water is piped in from. And I'm learning so much about how our water comes into the house and leaves the house. Going to the water, leaving the house, we
0: talked about being mindful of the chemicals, especially if you're using a gray water system. But I've always been a little bit stymied when I'm cleaning out the fridge. What's the best way if I find some funky soup so it's really liquidy. <laughs> so I can't throw it in the trash can or in the compost necessarily. Does it matter if I put it down my garbage disposal? Does it matter if I flush it down the toilet? Should I get out the little sieve that came with my sink and drain out all the bits and then let the rest go down? How can we be responsible in terms of what else we're putting out our exit pipes? So I think if it's anything that's
2: biodegradable if it's something that you would have eaten at some point (laughs) it's safe to put down your pipes that's not going to create the kind of corrosion or concern that you're probably worried about so by all means put the funky soup down the sink put the old food down the sink what you do want to pay attention to though is medications you want to be really careful never to put medications or cough syrups or anything like that down the sink those are things that are extremely hard to filter out and takes a high level of filtering that not every place and system uses. So don't put medications down the toilets or your sinks. And then liquids and auto fuels and things like that, that's not stuff you wanna put down there either. Hazardous waste collection day that they have in a lot of cities. But as far as foods on general cleaners, you're mostly okay.
1: What about bleach or latex paint or washing paint brushes? I mop my floors and I try and use pretty hippie biodegradable stuff. But I mean, is that something I want to be pouring outside so it filters into the ground instead or in a soakaway pit? Or is that something you feel like, not that you're an expert on a drain, but as someone who deals with the output, would it be beneficial for me to dispose of those items in another fashion?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And like you said, you're kind of Stepping into territory, that is not my area of expertise, but I think maybe if you have specific questions, doing a little research on what you should do with it is probably the first step. I think in general that if it's relatively innocuous, so if it's relatively harmless, you want to put it down your drain, mostly because they're expecting and prepare for that. A lot of times there those filtration systems are in place to address, especially typical household cleaners, things of small levels. Now, do you want to put a dump truck full of paint down your pipes? Absolutely not. Um, But, you know, there are hydrologic elements to your backyard that maybe you're not aware of either. And so safe and instructed disposal of chemicals are the way you want to go about it rather than thinking, okay, it's better that I put this on my property or in my yard for it to infiltrate into the ground because you don't know the hydrologic system underneath the ground and where that'll take it. Most likely it's going to take it into your watershed. It's going to take it to the closest surface water entity that's not going to have been treated. The way the systems work is that if you flush anything down the drain, it's treated and then it's disposed of into a waterway. And so you would be bypassing a very critical step to make sure that those chemicals are dealt with before they reach the environment.
1: Thank you, Sarah. That's a really responsible answer. And I think that that is important that we all take the time to research each of these individual things. I know I've done a deep dive about the paint specifically. And so I've learned a lot of ways to cast off the paint before it even reaches the drain. So I've become more passionate about having access to clean drinking water and trying not to contaminate our water sources. With that, even, I know that a lot of people don't like weeds and want to use herbicides or pesticides in their yards, to have green lawns. And I know there is some legislation, so they're not able to sell these items. And that's kind of the way that policy starts to change things. But I want us to take a moment and recognize whenever we do put something on our lawns or in our yards or down our drains, that it doesn't just go away. It goes into the sewers, which go back into, I think, the Chesapeake Bay. Um, maybe other locations, and definitely throughout the United States and throughout the world, this water ends up eventually getting to the ocean. Single-use plastic bottles is one thing that I would say the tarot reading was accurate to me about. I'm very angry about them. I was in a tropical location recently on a boat, and I was so grateful, but I saw so many plastic bottles floating next to me, and I'm like, where did these all come from? So is there anything you have to add to that about being conscientious about what we put on our lawns, or when we see trash, oh, it'll just get picked up by somebody. It sometimes gets cast down in the sewers, doesn't it? Oh yeah, all the time.
2: Yeah, and it's absolutely. I don't know how much I have to add to that, Megan, because I just agree with you completely and everything about that. And um so, the biggest concern right now in water quality is what we call PFAS and Don't ask me what it stands for. Big, long chemical name.
1: But essentially, we can put that in the show notes, too. So let me look this up real quick. It looks like it's per and polyfluorical substances. Yeah. Okay. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: It's, uh, you know, it's essentially this forever presence of plastics. These teeny, teeny little elements of plastics that are too small that we can't even filter out. And they're just everywhere. And they're in our water. And they collect in our body. It's what they are. You both know that I have two very young girls, and so I'm going to pull in a Frozen Two reference here. But if you've seen Frozen Two, Olaf makes this point about how water has memory, right? And when I first heard that, I was like, yes, like this is my world. But so, like, the point about water has memory is because it has isotopes in it that show us where it's been, like what systems it's been through, where in the world it's been through. And that's what he means when he says that water has memory. And now that memory that it has is plastics. Like that stuff doesn't leave. It just carries on with it forever. And that's going to be our biggest challenge over the next hundred years. Yes, we're talking about reducing. Yes, we need to be conscious about plastics, but it's here. And how do we deal with the fact that it's already in our water and our systems? And I just don't know. And that's what we have to deal with. And so I think that this is something that everybody needs to pay attention to. And everyone needs to listen up and say, yeah, my one-time-use plastic is really doing some significant damage. Is this necessary or is this convenience?
0: I think we're all hopefully galvanized by this information and feel by it. Perhaps as a closing question, I'd love to know, Given everything you see, given your time spent in this field, what gives you hope as we look forward? What keeps you hopeful that we will still have potable drinking water and be able to have our plants grow and thrive? I mean, our entire life is dependent on our water supply. Right. That's a great question. And so... I have
2: lots of hope and I know it may have been a little bit of a doom and gloom conversation today, but I have so much hope. Necessity is the mother of ingenuity. Is that right? Or am I way off base here? I think I'm mixing some phrases there. (laughs) I always think necessity is the mother of invention. Sure. Okay. Yes. Even better. Thank you very much. And that's exactly why water is critical. We're not going to be able to go forward without it. It's a need that's universal. We all need it. We understand that we're in a tough position. Because it's critical, I have absolutely no doubt that we will be able to address these challenges. I mean, think of where we're at with data and technology today compared to where we were 10 years ago. We take a sliver of that attention and put it onto world resources. We will absolutely come up with inventions and resources and solutions to some of the hardest problems and challenges that we're having right now. And so I'm not concerned. I mean, I'm concerned about the future. I think we should all be concerned because we need that concern so that we all get behind it and say, we need to put some attention and resources here. Um, but with that attention, I think that, you know, we'll we'll be able to live a thriving and long life um, and our the next generations will as well. So um, I have a lot of hope. I am an idealist at heart. Megan knows this very well, um, so I know that we'll get there. I just think that we need to put some. Time thank you into so
1: it. much, Sarah, for the breadth of your knowledge and expertise, and sharing all of it with us and with humor as well. Um, and thank you for making it approachable to those of us that are not in the field, because I mean, without being in this industry, it can seem kind of daunting. So thank you for approaching it in a way that we can all understand and apply it.
2: Well, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Olivia. It was really nice to be here today. I appreciate all the questions. And I said, like I said, I you know really appreciate the opportunity to kind of nerd out for a little bit. This is what I love. Um, and so happy to talk to anyone else, any one of your listeners that are interested in learning more. Um, and thanks again for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Subscribe to the Curious Nature Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star review. It means the world to us, and it helps more people find our
1: podcast. Please follow us on Instagram at Pod. You can email us at CuriousNaturePod at gmail.com. The information provided on this podcast is
0: for informational and entertainment purposes only. We are not, nor are we holding ourselves up to be physicians, psychologists, or any other medical professional. We are not
1: providing healthcare or medical or therapeutic services. The Curious Nature Podcast is produced by Olivia Bowen, sound design and production by Megan LaPrairie, theme music by Kabir Green, and logo art by Melinda Buchanich. Thanks for listening, Curious One.